Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. We're going to look at a passage today in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 6 and chapter 7. We're looking at this book together, and he's going to help us live with, not solve, but help live with some of the greater mysteries of life. Now, if you remember Solomon's life, um, he is writing a diary, that's the book of Ecclesiastes, and he tells us the unvarnished truth. He's coming at us kind of like a coach, not a lot of honey, just just truth. <laughs> it's sometimes harsh. Solomon's life story is that he was the third king of Israel, and God paid him a visit and asked him what would he want in life, one wish. And he wanted great wisdom, and so he had an, an unimaginable wisdom. And because he asked for that, God granted him that and then said, because you're asking for wisdom, I will also give you unparalleled wealth as you're a king. And so what did Solomon do with his wisdom and his wealth and his power? He spent it on selfish ambition. And he became decadent, and, and he lived a miserable life. He lived a terrible life. And he wanted us to learn from it. And so he wrote it all down and said, I have some insights for you guys so that you don't have to do what I had to go through. And he says that life is a great mystery. It is perplexing. It doesn't fit. It's not working together. There's too many contradictions that seem to happen. And it is um, meaningless. He starts off this book by saying, meaningless, meaningless, tells the teacher. Everything is meaningless. And in some translations it says vanity of vanities. Others will say futile. Everything is futile, futility, futility. And he says this not because life isn't worth living. It's that Life as human beings is exceptionally frustrating because, well, because there's, it's, this, it's this mystery that, that, that God has given us this insatiable desire to know how things work together. And, and there's, there's this key that we know there's a key out there that's going to unlock the door to this, this grand, beautiful plan. But God holds the key. And he is not letting go of it. Chapter 3 in Ecclesiastes, verse 11, summarizes this difficulty that mankind lives with. He says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. Absolutely. But he has also set eternity in the human heart, and no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. This is what separates us from the animals, that we have you know, a, a pretty long throw of the past. We have a long view of the past. We have a longer view of the future. We think that we can see a common thread through that. God put that in our hearts. Eternity. God made this beautiful plan. He put eternity in our hearts. That means we long to know that plan, but God does not tell us the plan. He doesn't show us. And so we live in a frustration with many different expressions of why it does not appear that there's a plan at all. And if there is, it is a long way from beautiful. And in chapter 6 and 7, what would take most of us decades, many people will never come to understanding this. He's going to share in two short chapters how to live with, not make sense of, but how to live with this disparity of why good things keep happening to bad people and why bad things keep happening to good people. It is as though if there were a God in charge, he saves up 
fame and fortune, notoriety and wealth to the people that could not care less about him and are just living self-indulgent, self-centered lives, and he gives them blank checks. Meanwhile, it's as though he's saving up suffering, sorrow, and death for the people that are pursuing him and are desiring an intimate relationship with him. And that disparity doesn't seem like someone has a plan, and it doesn't seem like the plan is all that pretty. Okay. So why do good things happen to bad people, and why do bad things happen to good people? That's what Solomon is going to try to reconcile with us. In his vast living experience, he wants to say, well, here's how to negotiate that. In the first part, in chapter 6, he says, not all good is good. You're upset. You're envious. You look over the fence and see the way other people live, and you think, why do good things keep happening to bad people? And he says, not all good is good. Happy things do not make happy people. Happy things do not make happy people. Enjoying eternal things makes people joyful. And look what he says in chapter 6, verse 1. He says, I've, I've seen another evil under the sun, and it weighs heavy on all of mankind that has eternity in their heart. God gives people wealth and possessions and honor, and they lack nothing their souls desire. But God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them, and strangers will end up inheriting them. That's the idea. The strangers enjoy them instead. This is meaningless, and it's a grievous evil. So wealth and honor do not make people happy because there's something missing in the wealth and the honor. All of their heart, lacking nothing their heart's desires except the ability to enjoy that wealth and honor. Because temporal things cannot fill an eternal void. And God is withholding this because they don't give God credit. First things first, and then you get second things second. They're putting second things first. They're putting things in front of God. So they don't acknowledge God. So Solomon's saying, sure, okay, they don't give God the time of day. And God does not give them the joy of all their stuff. You can, you can I mean, and look, who would know better than Solomon? I mean, a million dollars a day, power and authority and notoriety. But you read this book and he's miserable because he did not acknowledge God's greatness, and therefore God did not give him the joy of those possessions and that notoriety. The thing, happy things cannot make you happy because we have something everlasting in us. Let me give you an example. When I was in high school, I think it was my senior year, probably, and yeah, it was my senior year. My father and some friends bought a, a, a rather exclusive restaurant out of an IRS takeover. Okay, so the, the IRS comes in. If you've ever seen this happen, it's a little bit frightening. With no, without notice, they come in, and they just put locks on everything. And everything that was there belongs to them. And, and somebody else buys it, and they buy the key to all these locks. And so, I mean, if the, I mean, if the trash can's full, that's what you buy. Everything is just the way it was left. Money in the registers, the whole thing. And so this is the nicest restaurant in San Antonio at the time. And... And, and so they, they get the keys and they walk into these double walk-in freezers, top to bottom, filet mignon and lobster tails. And like, oh, look. And so we bought an extra refrigerator to put in the garage to just house as much as we could. Now, this, 
You can't buy this quality of meat. At least back then, they had a restaurant grade of meat that, that the pedestrians couldn't so in, to encourage you to go to restaurants. And so this was like nothing you could ever own unless you owned a restaurant. And so, we're, I mean, the first week we are eating it up. It, my, brother, my older brother and sister were in college, so it was just me. And my younger brother and sister were too young to appreciate, so we just cut up hot dogs and told them we were having filet. <laughs> That's the way I roll. So... So I'm having the surf and turf, the ultimate, the high peak of surf and turf. And I, I'm like, Dad, is this heaven? He goes, no, but it, it, it tastes like heaven. This is what heaven tastes like. <laughs> oh, it was fabulous. Uh, two weeks later, we're thin slicing the fillets and putting it on toast with, with mustard and, and relish. And f- six weeks later, it's like, Dad, don't you have any friends we can give this stuff to? Not lobster tail again. Because our stomachs were full, but our spirits were still suffering hunger pains because we're just feeding the anatomy and not our souls. It's not designed to fill the heart. You know this. You might have known this or have an experience like this. You can see a child who loves his parents and is grateful towards them. They have one toy to their possession and they skip and hum and sing the praises of that toy and of her parents. And next door, there could be a child that has room, rooms filled with toys. And there's nothing to do. And there's always that other widget that's better or bigger. And they're looking over at your kid's toil or something, right? Because they suffer from ingratitude and entitlement. And that's what that's what Solomon is referring to here. If you don't love the giver, you can't, love the, you can't enjoy the gift. And so now he's going to give a test case on that. That's the thesis in chapters 6, 1, and 2. And then in 3 and 4, he's going to give two extreme examples. I mean, just off the chart examples so that you understand that not all good is good. Why do, why do good things happen to bad people? Not all good things are good. I mean, look what he says in verse 3. A man can have, this is how they keep score. This is happiness right here. A man can have a hundred children and live many years. And yet no matter how long he lives, he, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive a proper burial, I say a stillborn child's better off than he is. He can have a hundred children. That's, wow, the more kids, the better back then. Wow, you are famous. You have a hundred children and you're living a long life but you never enjoy it. And so you have this funeral that says, here lies you know, John Doe, who was miserable the whole time of his life because something was missing and he never found it. It would be better, it says, that he, were a, that, he were, that he died at birth, that there was a miscarry, because a child of a miscarriage doesn't know about destination sickness, and that's what this person suffers from. It's a figure of speech that means they got there. Most of us never get to the destination that we long for. Oh, if only. Oh, if only. Better job, better house, better wife, better, 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 better. This person says, look, I gave you all the time you needed and all the children to keep score with, and you got there, and this person says, there's nothing here. Everything under the sun is temporal. It's, it's vanity. It's not working. I'm chasing these stupid rabbits around the track. They're not real, and you never catch them. And he experienced the misery of destination sickness. It would have been better if he'd never lived at all. Because in his ignorance, he would think, well, maybe there's something in life I just haven't been there yet. Let's give him some more time. Let's give him some more time. Look at verse 6. 
Even if he lives a thousand years twice, that's two thousand years. Over he lives that, but fails to enjoy prosperity. Do, do not all go to the same place? So there's two reasons why living two thousand years doesn't work. If you add years, finite years, you still don't get the infinite. So sure, I'll give you two thousand. What do you want? Two thousand years? Good. No, or one thousand years? Sure. How about I give you two? Keep running. You'll go to more places and say, is this it? And then the other point is he says, what happens at 2,000 years and a day? So you lived long and then you, yeah, you died. You were lowered into the grave just like everyone else. It's not the years, friends. It's the knowledge of God. That's what matters. It's, it's a contentment because you know who the giver is and you're a lot in life the cards you were dealt, and you are resting in that. And that's why Paul says in Philippians, he says, I know the secret. I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things how? How do you live that way? Through Christ who strengthens me. So Solomon says, look, I'm not going to try to make sense out of this. I'm going to try to help you understand maybe a little bit more about your problem with the, the disparity of the world where all good things seem to be happening to bad people. He, Solomon says, take it from me, right? Million dollar a day guy. Not all, not all good things are good. And here's how he says we should make sense out of life, some sense out of it. Verses 10 and 11, he says, let me bring some conclusion, conclusion to this. Be careful, O oh man. Okay, verse 10, whatever exists has already been named, and what humanity is has been known. No one can contend with someone who is stronger. The more the words, the less the meaning. How does that profit anyone? What's he saying? Whatever exists has already been named. The beautiful plan, it's already been named. In film, it's in the can. There's no more editing to this. It's sealed. God's in charge. He's got it. Doesn't need your help. Thanks. Okay? I don't... He's not asking about your review, but he, but he says, um, the more words, the less meaning. What does it profit? Why do you keep talking about what might have been, could have been the lot that you do not have, the hands that you did not get dealt? So you're going to wear him down with words? <laughs> I, I love verse 12. He gets, continues. He's just kind of talking about who are you talking to? You can't, you can't. You can't contend with someone stronger than you. Look at verse 12. It says, for who knows what is good for a person in life during the few and meaningless days that they pass through like a shadow? Who can tell them what will happen under the sun when they are gone? You don't know what the future looks like. You're just a shadow passing through, little guy. A man has to learn how to talk. I mean, think about it. We're talking about talking to God about what's wrong with his plan, and we can't comprehend it, and yet we have to learn how to talk, and we will forget how to talk, and we'll just keep talking to God about it, though, and the more words, the less the meaning. I don't understand. You didn't check in with me, and then, and then <laughs> let me put it another way, a little more graphically. A human being has to learn how not to go to the bathroom on themselves. And then later, they're going to forget that too. You'll wear diapers twice in your life. 
and you wanted to tell God what's what. Who are you, O man, that answers back to God? It says in Romans chapter 9. Careful. Every one of us, this is where we're going to go these days. You will be placed in a box, a cheap one. It will be sent into an incinerator, and you will be put inside of a vase about that big. And then it will be given to family members, and they will pass it around uncomfortably, not knowing what to do with it, until enough pass or go that someone finally deals with it, usually without telling anyone else, and then it's gone. We're, from dust we came, from dust we shall return. Solomon says, this plan, this plan. Let's please not talk about the unrighteous getting all the good things. We know so little because we are so little. Not all good is good. One person said, we do not know what tomorrow holds, but we know who holds tomorrow. Rest in that. Here's another way of putting it. Do not let what you don't know about God or his plan overthrow what you do know about God and his plan. Let me say it again. Do not let what you don't know about what's going on in your life or in the world don't let what you don't know supersede what you do know about God and his nature. That for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believed in him would, not, would have eternal life and wouldn't perish. He didn't send his son in the world to condemn the world. You know that. He must be the author of a beautiful plan. And if the righteous get blessed, what's that to you? Stop wearing him down with words. That's one of the problems that we see, inconsistencies with a God that's running the universe and it's a beautiful plan. Another one is, is how come bad things keep save, are saved up for the good people? How about the friends that we know or maybe in our own lives where we think we're pursuing God as much as we are able to and yet calamity comes banging on our door? There's a line forming outside of our house of bad things. And he says, you know what? Kind of like not all good things are good. Not all bad things are bad. In the grand scheme of things, think about it. Not all bad things are bad. Chapter 7, verse 1 says, A good name is better than fine perfume, and a day of a death is better than the day of birth. Okay, let's, let's take this apart. Okay, the first one is, the first part of this is talking about uh, uh, sweet perfume. Oh, we, we, we're supposed to, in that culture, we're supposed to envy the woman who walks in and just fills the room with her aroma because that ex, that's expensive. And we know now she has money and she's well-to-do and she's kind of classy and we wish we could have that. And he says, no, no, a, better, a, a, a good name is better than that. A good reputation, a walk with God supersedes that aroma of wealth because your death day is better than your birthday. What? Well, your birthday you have nothing to do with. And we're all starting off somewhat similar at that point. Your death day is when all the points are totaled. That's when you know who does well. That's when you know if they have a good name. A good funeral, he'll say later on. A good funeral, a good finish. They made it. They didn't trip, fall, or stumble. They have a great reputation. How you end is much more important than how you start. 
and and a great reputation or good name is far superior than a great aroma. The smell of righteousness is the smell of sweat. I'll bet you've been to a funeral of some person that was laid into a casket and their fingernails still had grease underneath them. Barely making minimum wage, but but the auditorium could be filled with people who they were cared for by this great soul. He cared more about God's love overflowing in his life into other people's lives than he cared about a house payment or a zip code. A great name is far better. That aroma, that aroma is what you're supposed to be living for, not these big things. And so how does a person get a great name? Chapter 7, most of the first half of chapter 7 deals with how does a person find their way into this caliber of depth and understanding of God and the meaning of life. Well, unfortunately, they experience the very things that we shake our fist at God about. Death, hardship, righteous anger towards injustice. There's a four or five things listed. We only have time to, uh, to talk about two of them. Death and sorrow. But my point is, my point is, that while we're arguing, oh, dear God, you know, why do bad things keep happening to good people? One of the things that we can find in common with all good, holy, deep, significant, righteous people is they all suffered. Suffering does not cause maturity, but you can't get maturity without suffering. Okay? Suffering doesn't cause maturity. Your response to suffering and hardship will determine whether you grow deeper with understanding and, and knowledge about the greatness of God. That's the common denominator. Not all bad is bad. Look at death, for example, verse 2 of chapter 7. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for death is the destiny of everyone, and living should, uh, uh, the living should take note of this or take heart to this. Okay? So what's he saying? I mean, so you've got to have a little family time together and say, hey, kids, here's the thing. We have two outings planned. You guys choose. We could go downtown. There's kind of a festival going on. There's a lot of free stuff, balloons. We could maybe go down on the lake. Or there's kind of a friend that you and I know, and they're going to have a little memorial service for them. S- swimsuits or all your black dress-up clothes? What do you guys want to guys do? Really, you can be honest with that here, really. Yeah, I mean, we're going to go to the lake. Absolutely. And, and Solomon is saying, no. As a person who had Gats, great Gatsby-like parties on a regular basis, Solomon speaks to us and says, nothing of significance happened as a result of that enjoyment. But funerals. Funerals are places where some people go to finally wake up. You know, the saying, everybody lives two lives. And the second life happens when you realize you have one life. Many people are one funeral away from that realization. And when you realize that you only have one life, that is the day the universe changes. No more games, no more piddling around, no more playtime. It's about ending well. It's about seeing God face to face with your shoulders back and your head up. I'm I get it. I want to invest in something that lasts for eternity. I want to love my maker and love his creation. That happens at funerals when you stare at a box and you think these words, I am next. 
You can go to 100 of them. One time, you'll realize I could be next. And so Solomon's saying, look, it is better to the house of the morning because that is the death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to their heart. Absolutely. Absolutely. Death is a good thing. Uh, the other thing he wants you to know is that sorrow is better than pleasure. Why do sorrowful things come to people that love God? Because sorrow is better than pleasure. Sometimes, verse 4, the heart of the wise is in the house of the morning, but the heart of the fools is in the house of pleasure. Verse 5 says, it is better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than to listen to the songs of fools. Not all bad is bad. Going to the house of mourning where you think deep thoughts and they can be melancholy or even morose is better than superficial party talk. And it is better for you to be reprimanded and corrected by a person of wisdom, far better than that, than to be schmoozed and kissed by a betrayer or even just one of your party pals. He's, he's screaming at us saying, look, there's, there's, there's meaning and purpose to life and you can't find that a lot of times laughing. It's the difficult times in life that make you real. Malcolm Muggeridge uh, is, I would say, arguably one of the most insightful uh, um, reporters, journalists in the 20th century. He worked for BBC and was all over the world, has a wonderful biography, uh, started off as a, a communist and atheist and ended up as a Christian believer that spoke well for God. Here's what he wrote in his diary that... Uh, in his biography towards the end of his life about suffering and, and how much he'd learned to love suffering instead of complain about it. Contrary to what might be expected, when I look back at the experience uh, of the times that seemed especially uh, desolating and painful, with, I look at those now with particular satisfaction. Indeed, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything that I learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my experience and my existence has been through the affliction and not through happiness, whether pursued or attained. In other words, if it ever were possible to eliminate affliction from our earthly experience by means of some drug or some medical mumbo-jumbo, as Audius Huxley does in Brave New World, the result is not to make life delectable, but it would make life benign and trivial and unendurable. This, of course is what the cross signifies. And it is this cross, more than anything else, that called me inexorably to Christ. He saw that suffering makes us well. And in his musings, he saw the cross and said, that is the ultimate expression of that value, that suffering heals. And that's what drew him to Christ, the truth that not all bad is bad. And there was this cross, and he said, that's the ultimate, the penultimate expression of that. So why do good things happen to bad people? Not all good is good. And how about bad things happening to good people? Not all bad is bad. How do you live? What I love about this book, again, he's talking to us like a coach. He is efficient with words, and he's going, to, he's going to speak right to us about how do we live in a world where we can't make sense out of injustice and, and immorality and some people getting off with everything, it appears, 
and they're making money and living in extravagant experiences. And a result of that, meanwhile, the righteous seem to be panned. So how do you do this? He says, he says, lean in. Lean in with everything in your life. Lean into this, that God has a beautiful plan, and it's got a name, and it's set, and he's not asking for any more help. That's your lot. Lean into that. He says, when you have a great time in life, lean into that. When sorrow comes your way, lean into that. Look what he says. Let me show you in verse 13. He says, consider the work of God. Who is, for who is able to straighten what he has bent? Again, he's not talking about fatalism again. If there's hunger that needs to be addressed, we need to address it. If there's injustice, we need to do everything we can to make sure justice prevails. What he's saying here is if the God has bent it this way, what are you going to do about straightening that? Oh, man. <laughs> a little, little urn full of dirt. Why don't you, instead of, instead of fighting God right, about the lot that you have been given, and, and Ecclesiastes 3.11 refers to this idea of the lot referring not just to man collectively, but you individually. How about instead of looking at the cards you are dealt and wishing you had someone else's cards, I wish I had their family or their job or their children or whatever that might be. Why not? What difference does that make in the long term of things? Does it change anything? No, it doesn't change anything. Because if God has bent it, what are you going to do about it? So instead of being morose about the hand you've got dealt, he's saying lean in and play it. Play the hand you've been dealt. And so you had, you grew up with alcoholic parents. Let's just use that for an example. There's so many expressions of this. But you grew up with alcoholic parents and, and der- terrible things happened in your living room. Okay. So, so there. That's your card. If you, would, if you would take the hand that you used to shake your fist at God and with more words, there's less meaning and find out that isolation and loneliness are one of the most despairing experiences in the human soul, if you could just take that hand down and hold someone else's hand who grew up in an alcoholic family, and you could say this to them. You could say this honestly. You could say, I know how you feel. And their life would not be so alone, and nor would yours. Stop fighting and live your lot, he's saying. You will not unbend this. The plan has already been named. Look at verse 14. I mean, well, hold on before I go on. Um, Que sera, sera. Doris Day, I think, something that. Remember, older people know, que sera, sera. Whatever will be, will be. Que sera, sera. The future is not ours to see. That's a fun song of a person that has resolved their place in the universe not to know. The future is not mine to see. Whatever will be, will be. I can live with this. I will lean into what God has bent I will not unbend. It's a great song. 
when times are good and when times are bad, verse 14 does a, a wonderful job of summarizing. He says, in the day of prosperity, be happy. <laughs> in the day of adversity, then you consider and you reflect. God has made the one as well as the other so that man will not discover anything about the future. You will not know what the future holds. The future is not ours to see. But you can do this. You can do this. In difficult and good times, he says, lean in. He says, lean in. When times are happy, don't wait for the other shoe to drop. Some of you people have this view of God. I've got that view too, right? Thank you, Sister Anne Marie. If you're happy, you'll be sad soon. So don't, don't be happy for too long. And he's saying, no, 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 you lean in. You have a great job. Yes, right? Look at this. He says, look, if you have a good meal in front of you, don't gulp this. Don't chew twice and swallow. Just enjoy every bit of it. Roll it around your tongue. Have some good sweet wine. Yes, you can do that too. Have a marriage. Enjoy the marriage. Enjoy. If you have good things going, then give credit to the giver, and he will give you the gift of enjoyment. But if you have sorrow, if you're in the sorrowful part of your life, he says, reflect Think about these things. He says, lean into that. Consider this. I would say this. Don't miss this blessing. You are most teachable, most vulnerable, most likely to change. Like Muckridge said, when you're crying, not while you're laughing. Don't miss this. Lean into it. Seize the moment. Feel the presence of God in your loneliness, in your sorrow, in your heartache. Stop shaking your fist. More words, less meaning. Let him run his universe. If I could, I've looked forward to this day, um, being 50, over 50, to study this book. And I think sometimes, I think if I could give something to you that are younger, I would give this to you. I would give you my fatigue. I am so tired. And it has been such a blessing. Because when I was younger, I had too much energy to fight. And I just kept fighting. I just kept arguing. I wanted to see the big picture. I wanted to peer over the wall. And I'd see some of it. And then it would just grow you know, blurry. And then I'd be angry again. I had so much energy to be angry and to tell God the way it ought to be. And now, just, I, don't, I can't care. I just can't care anymore. We're not, to, we're not to understand him. We are to enjoy him. It's, it, this is the cards you were, you were dealt. Play them. Let him enjoy you playing him. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All that other stuff will be added to you. Lean in. Lean in. Let him love you. I feel like sometimes I was like the little kid that's just screaming and fighting and, and, and arguing with dad in a way that, where I don't know what I'm talking about. And then I, I argue and scream myself into tears and then exhaustion. I fall asleep on the couch. And God, in his grace, will carry me to my bed where I will wake up the next morning and forget anything ever happened. Be the boy that wakes up in the morning, not the one who screams at night. That's true. That's right out of the Bible. That's Ecclesiastes, and that's why we're studying it.
I hope you live well. Lord Jesus, let us, let us put the appropriate faith in, in your providence and your sovereignty, that you are in control, you have this beautiful plan, you're able to pull off the plan, and the plan's bigger than anything we could ever hope or imagine. Maybe we will never understand it. I hope it's that big. I hope that when I'm in heaven, I still can't grasp it all. I hope it takes all eternity for me to figure it out. I hope I never figure it out. But right now, right here, Lord, I'd ask that you would give us peace in the way in our lot, in the lot we've been given. Let's help us quit looking at other people's lots, other people's cards, and just look at ours and enjoy it. Let us lean into them. You turn, you turn deaths into resurrections. I want you to do that in our lives. Turn the sorrow into something worth rejoicing. Lord, I'd ask that you would do a wonderful, miraculous thing in our lives. Give us peace so that we might enjoy you. In Jesus' name, amen. For more information about grace, visit our website at grace360.org. 